Hi, this is Laura. And this is Luli. And you are listening to Astela Around the World. We will be zooming out of Brazil to explore the worlds of extraordinary global tech thought leaders in a deep dive into their stories, their inspirations, views on tech investing, and perspectives on the different aspects and trends happening in the local and global tech ecosystems. Astela is an early-stage Brazilian-based VC. Stay tuned and welcome to Astela Around the World. I am so glad to have Chrysia and Jeff Abbott here with us to inaugurate Astela's new podcast series, Astela Around the Globe. Thank you, Chris and Jeff, to be here with us. These two incredible gentlemen are founders of Blitz Scaling Ventures and have a fantastic trajectory of uh, building, investing, and teaching startups. So very briefly, we will start with uh, Chris and Jeff's quick bio and move to an informal fireside chat to dig into their lives. It is wintertime in Brazil. We are still amidst the pandemic, but we can easily imagine this conversation happening live and in color. So Chris is the co-founder of Blitz Scaling Academy without teaches individuals and organizations how to plan for and execute on hypergrowth and of Blitz Scaling Venture, which invests in the world's fastest growing startups. Chris has founded, advised, or invested in over 100 high-tech startups since 1995. He is also the co-author, along with Reid Hoffman, of Blitz Scaling, the lightning fast path to building massively valuable companies and the alliance, managing talent in the network age. Chris has two degrees from Stanford University with a distinction in both and an MBA from Harvard Business School. So it's an honor to have uh, Chris here. Luli, would you intro Jeff? Sure. So <laughs> Jeff Abad is the co-founder of the Blitz Scaling Academy, which teaches individuals and organizations how to plan for and execute on hypergrowth and of Blitz Scaling Ventures, which invests in the world's fastest growing startups. Jeff spent a decade living and working in Latin America and speaks Spanish and Portuguese. During the time, he has co-authored two books and founded and scaled Latin America's largest online appliance store, Tienda Mabe. A dedicated international ecosystem and community builder, Jeff has worked with entrepreneurs in more than 40 countries and is now building a global community for scaling founders at the Blitz Scaling Academy. He holds a, a BA from University of Illinois and a Master of International from Thunderbird School of Global Management. Welcome, guys. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's a huge pleasure to be here. Thank you very much, Chris, Jeff. Let us start uh, with um, understanding or knowing a little bit about uh, your life as far as I can go. You guys have uh, done a lot until you gathered all the pieces to build a VC firm. So, Could you tell us a bit more about uh, your journey? What were the main experiences and uh, that you've gone through and what you think that are the fundamentals to where you are now, please? Certainly. And what I'll do is I'll talk about my story. And I think, Jeff, you'll talk about your story. And I'll tee it up by pointing out the point at which our stories intersect, which is a very critical time for both of us. And also one of the things that really fits in with this notion of Estella around the globe. 
So my own background, as you heard, was that I went to school at Stanford University, and yet, despite apparently being intelligent, I was not intelligent enough to stay in Silicon Valley when I graduated in 1995, and instead I went to the East Coast of the United States to work on startups. Obviously, the reverse of what someone should do, but it was still a great experience. I worked at a company called D.E. Shaw, which is best known as the company that Jeff Bezos worked for before he founded Amazon. Sadly, I did not get to know Jeff during that time. He had left before I arrived. Otherwise, perhaps my life would be very different. Probably not as exciting, but very different nonetheless. Uh, but since then, after that, I went to Harvard Business School and then came back to the Bay Area here in Silicon Valley to work on startups. And I have founded multiple companies, I think three or four or five or six. I don't know. Uh, it's hard to keep track of it. But uh, I was an operator. I had a number of positions as a VP of marketing for various venture-backed startups. I was CEO or interim CEO of a company called Ustream, which was a prominent live video startup that IBM eventually acquired for $130 million. And then towards the end of the 2000s, beginning of the 2010s, I began to transition into being much more of an advisor, investor, and thought leader. Because, you know, you, you have kids and you start saying, you know, maybe I shouldn't be the one who works 150 hours a week as an entrepreneur. Maybe I should take some of these hard-earned lessons and pass them along. And so I began doing that. And it was around the time that my very first book was released. So that was The Alliance that I co-authored with Reed Hoffman and Ben Kaznoka that I happened to get in touch with Jeff Abbott. And it was at a perfect time for us to get in touch because I knew that I wanted to do more with these different ideas I had for the Alliance, which is around management and the later blitz scaling, which is around how startups work. And the question was, what do I do with this? Because obviously I'm, I'm writing these books and that's what authors do. And I travel around the world speaking and that's what authors do, but maybe there's something more. And that's when Jeff came into my life. And Jeff, of course, has this great background on the corporate side and the startup side and the strategy side and the management side. He's basically done everything. And that was when Jeff said, you know, I think we could take the stuff that you're working on and really make something more of it. I think we can build something like a blitz scaling academy that will help carry your ideas to the rest of the world. And I think we can build a venture capital firm. And I said, well, I'm not exactly sure how those things would work, but I'm certainly willing to give it a try. And that's how our adventures began. And I think that was, again, back in 2014 and the seven years since. I've done so many things I'd never done before. I traveled to all these different continents I'd never been to before. I've been to Mexico. I'd never been to Mexico before. I've been to uh, San Chile. I've never been to Chile before. I was about to get to Sao Paulo when the pandemic came. But I rest assured, I will make it there. I'm looking forward to it. been to Cairo. I've been to all over Europe and all throughout Asia, and all thanks to the efforts of Jeff and helping us bring these ideas to the world. So with that, I will transition over to Jeff because as the architect of this vision, I want him to get the chance to talk about it. Well, that is an extraordinarily generous um, introduction, and fortunately, only a small part of it is, is true. But uh, thank you very much, Chris, for the, for the generous intro, and Laura and Ricardo, it's, it's a, a real pleasure to be here with you today. So I'm, I'm from a very small town outside of Chicago. And if I had gone into my father's business, I would be the sixth generation male in my family to be working in a foundry. Um, and fortunately, or unfortunately, the foundry industry uh, was not a high technology business and is one that basically no longer exists in my country. So I had to figure out what to do. And I was always, ever since I studied abroad in the United Kingdom, 
fascinated about having an international life. I had no idea what I wanted to do. I told my father when I went to university that that famous quote by Socrates to be neither a citizen of Athens nor of Greece, but of the world was what inspired me. And I, I would just follow that course. And so along the way, I mean, my, my intersection with Latin America came because after completing my MBA, I was offered a chance to become a visiting professor at one of the top universities in Mexico, the Tech of Monterey. And I just discovered a part of myself that I didn't know existed. I really tapped into uh, a friendlier, happier, more sociable version of me that I, I didn't know existed. And I made so many friends. And in the course of teaching and, and becoming friends with thousands of students, I found a wonderful book uh, by my friend Robert Moran, who had been my professor. And I said, you know, Bob, it's crazy, but we're about to enter into this thing called NAFTA. And they were talking about the free trade agreement of the Americas. But yet Americans and Latin Americans and Canadians have so little understanding of how to work together. And so we, we penciled out the uh, table of contents of a book on a napkin over breakfast at a, a Mexican restaurant. And just like, you know, that, that's nearly 30 years ago. And, and I was very young and the book probably wasn't very good, but it led to so many opportunities, just as working with Chris and his books have. It opened a corporate career for me. And I went to work first for Whirlpool and then for General Electric. And the next seminal thing that's relevant to this is while at General Electric, um, I was in charge of marketing in Latin America. So it took me many times to Brazil. I spent probably um, six months total in, in Brazil, based mo mostly in Sao Paulo and Campinas, um, made wonderful friends and just loved the culture, studied the language and the music, went on Saturday mornings to watch people doing capoeira in the park, all those things that one does. But it was during the dot-com era. 1999, 2000, 2001, the first time that technology was really being applied to business. And so I had the great fortune of, of being able to be the, the guy to develop the first websites and content management systems. And, and so I really got fascinated by Silicon Valley. I was reading Harvard Business Review and Fast Company, and I'm, I want to be, I want to, I want to do that. But I was inside of a big company. So the farthest I got was we launched an online appliance store as part of it. And, and I, I look back now and we applied many of the techniques of blitzscaling to growing at it, which is why it's an enduring success even today. Of course, I connected those dots many years later after reading Chris and Reed's book, but that really awoke in me this desire to, to work with the internet. Unfortunately, um, I, I had a, a startup idea that I wanted to work on. I was going to go do it and join an incubator in Mexico City with Semex, but the NASDAQ crashed, as we all know, and I stayed with my corporate career. So it took me another 10 years to find my way back, this time in Arizona, where I became sort of a leader in the local ecosystem, um, creating startup weekends, visiting accelerators. I, I just committed to educating myself, everything I could possibly learn about the startup ecosystem, startups, investing, angel investing. And little by little, I became one of the connectors in Arizona, and which is an hour and 30 minutes from Silicon Valley, but might as well be a world away. And so by the time I met Chris, I had found my way to running the accelerator at Arizona State University. It's a very large university, 85,000 students, probably the fifth largest online community. So we had a really unique chance to apply technology to startups um, with this global reach. So I started developing uh, a curriculum for the startup program and putting it online for free. And that was an idea that I walked in the door with. And that's really the seed of the Blitzscaling Academy was, is there is there some way that we can build a global audience, that we can do what we're doing and bring the world's best experts, just like Udacity or Coursera is bringing the world's best expert teachers? Why can't we do that in some way for startups? But I, I didn't have content. I didn't have 
an idea of, of what to do beyond that, right? And, and that's where the intersection with, with Chris comes. So I resolved to leave the university and, and just said, Chris, let's work together and, and, and figure something out. We were working with really early stage startups and we did that for a couple of years. And we both concluded, you know what? The chance of success here is just not high enough. Let's make a conscious effort to try to find a way to position ourselves to work with the world's best scaling entrepreneurs. Of course, you couldn't ask for more incredible fortune that two years later, Chris and Reed publish a book that goes on to be Blitzscaling and provides that framework and that architecture and, and that brand. So we're incredibly blessed. I'm incredibly blessed to have the opportunity to work with them. But that really was the genesis of it was seven years ago. Let's do this. Let's work with scaling entrepreneurs. Let's do it globally and let's build a fund. And so here, here we are. I couldn't be more delighted. I feel incredibly proud of of the journey we've made so far, even though technically we're just getting started. That's awesome. That is so amazing. Awesome. Yeah. That's why podcasts are great because I would never have the opportunity to learn about your lives. And it's so wonderful. What a trajectory, both of you. So interesting. Yeah. It's so exciting talking about how paths cross and, you know, how Jeff brought to the end of this first point. Chris, how did you and Reed Hoffman cross paths and how did you build that relationship and how the whole story about writing a book together come about? Absolutely. So one of the things that I like to tell people is that it is far better to be lucky than good. And I have been so lucky throughout my life that the right people have just sort of come into it. But of course, that luck is helped by the fact that I go out of my way to meet smart and interesting people and stay in touch with them. So I think we can both take credit for it. I can take some credit and luck can take a lot of credit as well. In the case of Reed, there were a lot of reasons why we might have run across each other before, but we didn't actually run into each other until he was starting LinkedIn. So there are a lot of similarities in our background. So both Reed and I went to Stanford for our undergraduates. Reed was actually from five years ahead of me. So we never overlapped on campus. He actually graduated right before the 1989 earthquake. And I came in after the 1999 earthquake. So it all sort of well melded together there. And in fact, and interestingly enough, during the early days of the dot-com boom, Reed started his very first company, which was called SocialNet. And it was one of the world's first social networks. It was something that was designed to be a general purpose social network for just about any reason, business, personal, you name it. And it ultimately wasn't successful, but I was one of the few people who actually signed up and was participating in this social network. Again, I had no idea who Reed was at that point. He had no idea who I was. And yet we were gravitating towards the same things. And we finally met when he launched LinkedIn. I had been very interested in the concept of social networking dating back to the tail end of the dot-com boom in the late 1990s. And when LinkedIn came out, I said, this is the one for me. Because at the time, there were three social networks that really came out at the same time, LinkedIn, Friendster, and Tribe. And of them, LinkedIn was probably the least well-known. Friendster and Tribe were more well-known. Friendster especially was on the cover of various magazines. But the problem is they weren't really for me. Friendster is for young single people looking for dates, and I was already married. And Tribe is for people who are in a motorcycle gang or some sort of club, and that's not me either. And so I gravitated towards LinkedIn. I was actually one of those people who, in his Microsoft Outlook folder and files, had you know taken down faithfully all the different contacts I had and when their kids were born and what I knew about them and, and all that sort of thing. And so LinkedIn was a natural for me. And I signed up for the product. Turns out I'm roughly user number 3,000 
globally that signed up. And I saw that the founders were all Stanford alums. So I reached out using Stanford's, Stanford actually had at the time a proprietary alumni social network. And I reached out to the founders and said, hey, you know, I'm Chris Yeh, and I've been involved in the startup world for the past, you know, six or seven years and done these various things. And I really love your product. And I gave them a bunch of suggestions. And this is what I think you should do. And I actually had Reed come and speak at a Harvard Business School alumni event. Because if you can believe it, at the time, Harvard Business School alumni didn't know you needed to be a member of LinkedIn. And so that was the first time I, I, read, I met Reed in person. And we then worked together from there, uh, pitched him on various companies. We even co-invested a couple of times. And then finally, in 2011 or so, this was after LinkedIn had gone public, uh, what had happened was, uh, maybe it was, 20, no, it was 2011, 2011, 2011. And what happened was Reed's book, The Startup of You, that he had written with my friend Ben Kaznoka had come out. And I actually, in the book, and contributed to, contributed some thoughts to it. I was also a consultant on it. Anyways, they call me up or email me and say, hey, do you have time to come see us? I'm like, well, sure. You're both my friends. I'm happy to do that. And I went in to see them. And they said, hey, we'd like to do even more work on writing books. But, you know, it's really hard. And you write faster than anyone else we know. Would you be willing to join us and work together with us? And I said, well, uh, it depends. I have one question. Oh, well, what's that question? Well, whatever we produce is my name on the cover. And they said, yes, of course. We're asking you to be a co-author, not a ghostwriter. Like, perfect. That's all I need to know. I'm in. And that's how this whole adventure began. Because I've been writing thousands of blog posts just for myself. The audience of them, you know, varied. Some of the blog posts would have tens of thousands of people reading them. But, you know, this is a whole nother story, right? Working with Reed, who was one of the iconic figures of Silicon Valley, co-authoring with him, that meant that my idea suddenly reached millions instead. And so it was a, an incredible opportunity that I jumped into with both feet. And we've been working together uh, closely ever since. That's amazing. And Jeff, I just uh, learned that... Uh, after such an impressive, extensive, and educational background in business, you were back to school to become a doctor in business administration. Tell us a little bit, uh, what was the spark that um, led you to this uh, plan and uh, your thoughts on formal education and what are your views about the future of it? So I was, uh, this is a subject that we debate a lot in Astella, the role of uh, formal education in the future. And I was just curious to make this question to you since uh, you are tracing this path. So tell us. <laughs> well, it's a really good question. Um, so I think my first thought was I'm planning for a long time in the future. I don't, certainly don't need more education. Um, it's not like an MBA where, you know, it's useful to get a corporate job. I'm in a position now where it's really just about learning. But I think later in life, it could be interesting. I've always been very young at heart. I love working with young people and mentoring at universities or places like the European Innovation Academy, where you get to work with some of the brightest young minds. And so I kind of imagine my later days in life as, you know, Professor Jeff, somewhere, wherever I happen to live in the world, working with people. And I, I think having that degree, number one, will make it a lot easier to secure a useful position because that's what the academic world values. Whether it's right or wrong, it's sort of definitely a, a price for admission. So that's one piece of it. Number two, I want to do research about the work that we're doing. And so a DBA is a, is a research degree. It's not a 
it's not a PhD and it's not an MBA, but it's essentially focused on developing thought leadership. So I get the chance to work with faculty advisors. And my goal is to take some aspect of the work that we're doing and demonstrate efficacy or take a set of data, perhaps over time of companies that we've worked with. Maybe it, maybe it's the way that we score companies and then later work with them to prove out somehow empirically that what we're doing makes a difference. Or so I, I think, you know, that's where I started. Number three, uh, you know, maybe that turns out to be useful and insightful and could result in a publication that would have my name on the front cover that isn't 25 years old. <laughs> because I think it's well demonstrated that publishing and, and being a thought leader is, is useful and enjoyable. It's a, a wonderful calling card. And so it's, it's been a lot of fun to work with Chris and um, contribute to Chris's rising star as a, as a thought leader. And, you know, finally, my thoughts on the future of education. Well, here is where I have to be perfectly honest. I don't really like the degree program I'm in very much. Um, it's, uh, it feels like it's outdated. It's still very much, you know, the professor is the expert. Here's the rules. You follow this process. And I don't know if that's a factor of where I'm doing it or, you know, the culture of the country where, where I'm doing it. There's definitely a, a big difference, at least as it relates to higher education in Italy. It's much more authoritarian, top-down professor as expert. You sit and listen, they sit and tell. Uh, whereas the way things are moving is I'm the learner, I'm the guide. Maybe at best the professor is, is a facilitator and someone that helps me connect and, and guide my journey. So I'm, I'm definitely participating in a program designed for the old world of education, taught by people participating in the old world of education. It's up to me what I make of it. And, and so that's another thing that I'm turning around in, in my mind is how do I turn my experience into something that the way I do the work actually fits with and is consumable by people in, in the new world of education. So if I publish something, is it, is it online? Is it accessible? Is it, you know, easy to work with? But, but I, I also have just always loved the university in environment, right? So I, my first job out of MBA school was I was a full-time professor at a university in Mexico. And it was the lowest paying job that I've ever had. But every one of my students was my friend. I'm, I'm still on a Facebook group with many of them. You know, I get news about their, their careers and their, their families. And, you know, I think that's just wonderfully enriching to life. So I think it's all of those things. Thanks for your honesty, Jeff. I think that's really interesting. I'm also a believer that you know, we always have to find out how the old world and the new worlds collide, right? What can we get best from the old world? I think there's always something there. So a uh, very interesting perspective. Let's go on to the next question. And we at Estella are fans of the Blitzkilling methodology. So we wanted to get into some of that. We find it very interesting how you account for network effect, virality, and size of the market. How do you think about momentum or zeitgeist as part of it? Is it something that you try to capture indications on marketing trends and patterns, or you trust on the numbers related to growth? So as always, the answer to the question is yes. And that means both of them are relevant. So I would say that of the two, the core thing that we focus on more than anything else are the numbers and the reality on the ground. And that's because it's very easy to get caught up in the hype cycle. So, for example, in the past year, one of the companies that was the most hyped and then eventually seemed to really die down quite a bit is a company called Clubhouse, this social audio network, and it sort of pioneered this concept of social audio. 
And when we looked at it, of course, there was a tremendous amount of momentum that seemed to capture the zeitgeist. Everyone was talking about, hey, Elon Musk is on it. Wow, this is huge. And we looked at it and we said, okay, but at the same time, let's understand who's on it and why they're on it and what the dynamic is. And the reality is that an audio social network is very powerful, but an audio social network that is essentially just second-rate talk radio, it's not clear why it's going to be better than the traditional talk radio, which has not become the, the world-dominating medium by any stretch of the imagination. And we track things like, okay, well, how many of these rooms are up and how many people are actually participating? And we saw that the number of people participating was declining. And I'm like, well, that's not a sign of a company that has momentum, despite the news stories being written and the famous people being involved. At the end of the day, hype is just that, hype. And what matters is the individual choices made by individual end users in the privacy of their own home or office or what have you. And for us, it always boils down to we have to go back and look and see what people are doing. Uh, Jeff and I, as you know, are doing some investing with Blitzscaling Ventures. And one of the things that we have the luxury of doing sometimes is tracking the progress of these companies over time. And rest assured, as we're looking at the numbers, if the numbers don't reflect the kind of momentum we're looking for, it doesn't matter that they're getting all these flattering stories written about them. It makes us ask, well, why are the individual users not making these choices? Because guess what? They're not reading those news stories. They're just making a decision every single day. Do I go to this app or not? Do I buy this product or not? And it's the sum of all the decisions that really matters. Very interesting. Jeff, I'll turn this question to you because it's related to how you help founders with uh, one specific issue that I think it's pretty much correlated with uh, resilience. Blitz scaling is a concept that uh, is counterintuitive because it frames the importance of uh, prioritizing growth over efficiency sometimes. And uh, we Brazilians and most of uh, Latin uh, people come from a legacy of a high interest rate and low liquidity. So for us, think about uh, giving up on efficiency is tougher. My question for you is how in your uh, daily life you help founders to identify the elements for blitz scaling so they become comfortable with the concept and with the idea of uh, growing and speeding up? It's a really good question, and it, it takes me back to the first time that I read the manuscript that Chris and Reed had prepared, which was probably about 18 months before the book was published. And when I got done, I spoke with Chris on the phone. I said, wow, I mean, th this is incredible. I mean, it's a, it's a wonderfully written book, and it's full of so many anecdotes, but at its heart, it is a framework. And this goes back to my work in corporate strategy, where we regularly used different frameworks. You know, you're solving an industry problem, you use Porter's Five Forces, you're looking at a branding problem, you know, whatever the, the challenge was, I liked to have a toolkit of frameworks at my disposal that would help me think through that problem. In fact, Charlie Munger, the famous associate of Warren Buffett, has said that, you know, almost every problem can be solved by applying the right tool. And he has a list of about 100 frameworks that he uses, which he believes together can solve any problem that you're looking at. And so when I saw Blitzscaling, the first thing, it just went off in my mind. This is a framework. We need to turn this into a framework. And it wasn't immediately clear how to do that, but Reed and Chris lay out the, the six growth factors and growth limiters, which for purposes of the Blitzscaling Academy and Blitzscaling Ventures, we've now turned into seven. And, and we've kind of grouped them a, a little bit differently 
uh, evolved them uh, from where they were originally in the book. And we've turned that into a scoring tool, a canvas that allows people to think through their own business, ask themselves questions about their own business, about their team, the market they're in, the capacity of their business to generate virality or to form distribution partnerships. And what you often find is that one of or two of those areas, which they go after, they'll come up and they'll say, I don't know anything about this. And it turns out to be very important. And so there you have seized upon a starting point, right? Because it turns out that two of the elements are essential elements, the network effects and winner take most and the virality and and distribution uh, potential of the company. And if it turns out that either of those are ones that they know nothing about, well, then probably they're not going to blitz scale. Probably this isn't a blitz scalable business model. And so then depending on where the stage of the entrepreneur is, if, if they're very early, if they're students or seed stage entrepreneurs, and it's their ambition to build a blitz scalable business, now the framework becomes a tool to help you think about what are the changes that I can make, the experiments that I can run to help steer my original idea, if it's possible to do so, into something more fundamentally scalable. Or if it's not, if it just is not, but it is my ambition to build a global market leader, then at least you've solved that problem for them. You've got them off that erroneous path um, earlier rather than later. Similarly, if it's a later stage company with much more traction and results, it also allows you to dial in it in the same way, just to go a little bit deeper. And so that's really what I would say summarizes the, the essential notion of, of the Blitzscaling Academy is turning Blitzscaling into a framework, turning it into some tools that individuals, teams can use, and then being prepared to meet them where they are with that knowledge gap and send them off down another pathway with us as the facilitator. And so I I think, to me, that's what we're doing. And of course, with Blitzscaling Ventures, we do that at a more intense level when they're our portfolio company. Chris gets involved deeply personally to work with them. But what we've done really is is pull out of Chris's brain and Reed's brain this company building philosophy and framework and, and try to turn it into a pathway. Really interesting. So I'd like to add on to this question from a slightly different perspective. And I think this question is for both. So we now see remarkable access to to VC capital all over the world, leveraged by very low interest rates in general. Uh, The impact in valuation is very notable. How do you view the increase in valuation in the early and growth stages? Are investors pricing a larger growth expectation, or in general, do you think we will see a decrease in returns for the industry? So this is one of those classic general questions about the industry that I have a very standard answer for that not everyone likes. And my answer is everything is ultimately affected by the public markets, right? At the end of the day, the goal is to either take the company public or sell the company. And if you sell the company to another company, that company itself ought to be a publicly traded company. Otherwise, it probably shouldn't be paying cash. And so everything ultimately falls back to the public markets. And I remember back at the beginning of this pandemic, we were very concerned about what was going to happen to the world economy and to the startup world in general. There's been a pretty continuous expansion since the financial crisis, and we've been overdue for a recession. And so when the pandemic hit, I thought, ah, this is it. This is what's going to trigger an economic downturn, and we're all going to have to deal with it. And in fact, what happened was the opposite. What happened was the money and consumer spending fled online 
to the benefit of the technology industry. Everyone bought a lot more electronic equipment so that they could work from their homes. And so all of a sudden, it's actually a boom time for the industry. And you could see that reflected in the stock market valuations. When the pandemic began, Elon Musk was not anywhere close to being the richest man in the world. And yet now he and Jeff Bezos are locked in a titanic battle, both to be the richest man in the world and to, to get into orbit and build their own star destroyers. And so as a result of this, that's what's affected the valuations. The only thing that affects valuations at the end of the day is supply and demand. And because the public markets have gone up and up and up, there is more demand for private company stock. The supply is relatively stable. And so that's why the prices have gone up. Now, the corollary to this question is, what do we as investors do about it? Because we are facing market conditions, and we typically do not set the prices of the rounds of the companies we work with. We're a member of a syndicate. Somebody else is setting the price. We have to decide whether or not to buy in at that price or not. And there are times when we look at a deal and say, this is too expensive. Because it is a question of buy low and sell high. That's what being an investor is all about. And buying high and selling higher doesn't always work if the high is already enormously high. So for us, what we're looking at is we're looking at, well, you know, how does this seem valued relative to its business? Now, where we have an advantage is that blitzscaling companies have a much greater tendency to grow at an exponential rate. And the human mind is not well-equipped to deal with exponents and to deal with anything other than linear progress. And so we feel like that thanks to the pattern of human thinking, people underestimate the growth and impact of exponential companies. And so because we disproportionately invest in companies that are market leaders and that are potentially subject to exponential growth, we feel like we're shielded to a certain extent. While, of course, we're going to be affected by any economic downturn that occurs, the companies that we invest in tend to be the ones that benefit from a flight to quality and do intend to continue growing and being successful over time. Of course, we prefer the good times to continue, but we've tried to position ourselves to work even if the bad times come. That's very interesting. You uh, at Blitz Scaling Ventures source deals all over the world. So my question is, uh, how do you view the different ecosystems? How do you weight uh, macro and business environment? And uh, how do you view local or, or businesses that are focused to one specific demand that are not uh, probably a global business? Are those companies still eligible for blitz scaling ventures or you only look for global thesis? So I think it's interesting. Um, since we started, we have expanded our deal sourcing intelligence to cover over 40 ecosystems. And, and we're doing that through a network of intern analysts that most of whom live in the markets that we're asking them to cover. And so we picked out ecosystems through, you know, essentially looking at level of deal activity or ranking on the global economic development index, other well-known indices that, you know, suggest levels of activity or quality. And it's important to note in the Blitzscaling book, Chris and Reed call out the fact that they expect there'll be many more Silicon Valleys because all of the elements, except perhaps the knowledge of how to scale, are present everywhere. And so we're finding incredible companies across many of these ecosystems, and we're looking literally in every continent. What I think starts to emerge after six months of doing this are the interesting trends, um, which is why I think it's it's also important, for example, that a fund not invest everything in one year, because I fully expect that in 2022 and 23, that interesting trends will emerge, and you'll see different variations of them in different markets. But 
you know, for example, today, fintech um, in the underserved market is blossoming at an incredible pace. And we're seeing companies that are quite similar, but somehow uniquely different to the market in places like Egypt, in Brazil, in India, in Indonesia. Same basic underlying need, same application of technology, but quite a different local spin. Another one is social selling, social commerce. And so the question is, going back to your original question, are we only interested in things that can become global winners or are we also looking locally? And I think it comes down to market size at that point and the degree to which that large market, so if we're talking in Brazil, a Mexico, an Indonesia, perhaps in Egypt, can that market be dominated? Is there a winner-take-all play, a land grab, network effects that can lock in? And then does that market have enough uh, ties or cultural affinity to adjacent markets that would allow it to grow to become a regional leader? Um, if that's the case and the region itself is large enough, then the question of global may be, may be irrelevant. That's my two cents. I know Chris will have an uh, interesting take on that as well. Jeff and I are very much in agreement about this. It's not a surprise since we talk quite a bit, but it really boils down to the fact that when it comes to global ecosystems, the defining factors are geography and language. And so as a result, there are a couple of different quote unquote internets that we have to consider. There is the English language internet, which is sort of the dominant force right now. And that's primarily because of the dominant force of the United States, but many other countries will go ahead and, and transact in English as well. It is the, the lingua franca of the world in many ways. But that means that there are other opportunities as well. I think that there is a Chinese internet, which is marked both by language and by government policy and the Great Firewall of China. And certainly, there are many companies in China that grow and become enormous blitzscalers without ever leaving greater China. And that's because it's such an enormous market. And that's why we see completely different winners in these spaces. Amazon is not as powerful in China as it is elsewhere in the world. Alibaba is not as powerful in the United States as it is elsewhere in the world. And that's just a reality. I think if we start to look at it, the obvious ones are, of course, the English language internet and the Chinese internet. But then we go further. I think that India is going to represent a major ecosystem. And I think Brazil is going to represent a major ecosystem. If you just simply look at the fact that their population and demographics and emerging middle class make these great opportunities to invest. I think that elsewhere in Latin America, we're certainly excited about Latin America in general. We view Mexico as the linchpin because it is the largest population country in uh, in Spanish-speaking Latin America. So Mexico and Brazil are sort of the, the twin towers of the, uh, of, the, of the Latin American side of things. I think that we are certainly looking very closely at Southeast Asia. The amount of progress there is remarkable. And again, longer term, because of the population population and demographic boom, it's probably more interesting than, say, a, a South Korea, where the language and geography limits it to a greater extent. So we're looking all over the world. And we're still taking our first initial steps into Africa. We primarily look more at the, the Middle East and the Arabic-speaking world, which is certainly large enough to represent such an ecosystem. And we've seen you know, companies coming out of whether it's Egypt or Saudi Arabia that are doing very well there. And I think we're still learning about uh, Africa. And we are very open to learning there, but we're still in a very, very early stages of sub-Saharan Africa. 
That's wonderful. Any view on different kind of businesses, uh, solutions or business model that uh, you think would most uh, likely come out of Brazil or Latin? I mean, obviously, fintech is, is one that everybody knows, but maybe you have a, a view on a different uh, space that, we, that would be uh, good to share. We continue to find things in the area of commerce to be really interesting if they're able to produce a new way of doing it. So the reason is is fairly straightforward. Because of the demographic shifts, because of the emerging middle class, because the infrastructure is not as developed as in the United States, in many ways, the opportunity is larger in an emerging country like Brazil. And this is something we talk about in the book, which is in a market where the infrastructure is not all set up for you, of course, it's harder. And there's more friction up front to get your company started and to make it a successful market leader. But then by owning that infrastructure, whether it is in the form of somebody like Alibaba owning things like Alipay and Ant, whether it is in the form of a company like Mercado Libre owning things like Mercado Pago and, and so on and so forth, when you own the infrastructure and you are able to then have that as a competitive advantage over your other players in the market, I think that leads to even greater growth rates later on in the history of the company. So we continue to be very excited about things in the field of commerce. I think, of course, we're always looking at new forms of social networks. The, I, the funny thing about social networks is that no social network remains dominant forever because of the grandmother effect, which is eventually when your grandmother's on the network, you decide it's not cool anymore. And so young people are always moving from network to network. We've seen them move. I mean, by definition of young, we've seen them move from Facebook to Snap to TikTok just in the past 15 years. And that is purely a question of younger generations saying, I reject this uncool stuff that old guys like Chris and Jeff are doing. I want to jump in a new stuff. They couldn't be caught dead playing around on Twitter. So I think that that is always something we're looking for to see what emerges. Really cool, guys. So now let's go on to a more philosophical question. Let's talk about the future of humanity. I'd like to hear from you guys. Like, What are the main issues or problems you, would you expect innovators to address over the next following years, right? And how do you see, like, what kind of world, like, how far can we dream that our world will create the solution we need for sustainability? You can go as deep as you want to answer these questions. And how does this drive your investment decision after all? So it's, an, it's a really fascinating question. And I'll start out by, by stating that when I was younger, I really was an avid reader. And my two favorite genres were fantasy and science fiction. And my major at university was history. So I guess when you look at both of those, right? And today we work in innovation. So when I think of that, what that means, it means that I'm someone that has a great affection for what has come before. I like to look back in history. I love traveling to places of historic value. I, when I fantasize about trips that I'd like to take, many of them occur in the past. Like I, I would love to go to certain places in the past and, and witness with my own eyes what life was like then, or just see nature in its undisturbed form. I, I almost entirely watch historical fiction and historical drama. Then you turn your, your mind to the future, right? And, and you read Isaac Asimov or Larry Niven or some of the other more recent incredible authors. And, and there are these mind-blowing conceptions of the future that at once are so impossible to comprehend, so far away from what's today possible, but also so relatable that somehow the people in those stories are living lives that feel very human, very much like ours. They're just surrounded by this pervasive technology that is so incredible. And 
And so how do you meld those together? I think for me is, is the question. I, what I get concerned about and I, and I think about is how do we not lose a sense of place? When you look back in history at all of the most important civilizations, the ones that have contributed, contributed lasting cosmologies, uh, the kind of things that Joseph Campbell would write about, all of those were really grounded in a place. They, they, they had a very strong spiritual connection to, to nature, to that place. And so how do we move into a virtual world where we live inside of a gaming platform and there's virtual real estate agents selling virtual buildings and we don't have that same degree of connection with the world around us? I worry about that for younger generations. Um, when I go to a place like Las Vegas, which is a complete creation of the human mind, Las Vegas is a few buildings in the desert. There's no reason that place should even be there. And yet when you walk through the malls, you're convinced that there is this place, right? It's, it, all of this is in our mind, but we're still right where we are. We're facing climate change. We're facing hunger and famine and, you know, and potentially conflict. And so I really, I really think my hope is that all of these technologies that like VR or gaming immersive communities that take us so far out of ourselves, I hope we find a way for them to bring us back into ourselves. And the third axial age that Pierre Teilhard de Chardin wrote about in the 1930s, the great uh, Catholic philosopher described the third axial age, the time when a single consciousness would come about on earth, when people would realize that we were all one, that we were all connected. We have to not just achieve that online. I, 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 we, we have to achieve that somehow in our hearts and in a place that also relates us back to to where we live. So I can be pessimistic or I can be optimistic, but we only have a choice to be optimistic. And, and that's what the wonderful opportunity to work with so many entrepreneurs are and hopefully pick projects that, that have those qualities. So I, I would never want to be aligned with something that I felt was taking us towards a dystopian, however profitable future. So those are my thoughts. Well, those are fantastic thoughts. I also want to just issue a recommendation for Jeff, given his love of science fiction. I know that Apple TV Plus will be releasing its adaptation of Foundation from Isaac Asimov sometime in the near future. So definitely keep an eye out for that one. So in terms of just my view of things, I think that when it comes to optimism, I'm absolutely an optimist. Uh, I think that I've been an optimist my entire life. And I think you've hit the nail on the head by describing the challenge of our times as sustainability. And that's sustainability on a whole variety of levels. Obviously, we're very familiar with things like climate change. But just in general, it's the question, as something that I've said multiple times or during this podcast already, is the emergence of the middle class and the growth of the middle class. Well, that's happening all over the world. But if the population of the world were to consume energy and resources at the same rate as the United States of America, we would need, I think I've heard somewhere like four to seven Earths worth of resources in order to accommodate that. And I just don't think that the answer is going to be that people will say, we'll all agree to accept less. That's just not the way that human psychology works. So it's up to us to figure out how to make it work, how to create a world of abundance where everyone can move forward. And hopefully we will be more equal, but where everyone will move forward because you can't get to equality by bringing other people back. They're just not going to accept it. I think that one of the things that fills me with great hope is the kinds of entrepreneurs that we meet. We meet entrepreneurs all the time who are doing just amazing things. Jeff mentioned Arizona State University. There's a fellow we know there who is working on a company 
that pulls fresh water out of the air using solar power. It's remarkable. It could solve the water problems of the entire world if done correctly. And that's just one of hundreds or thousands of startups that are doing this amazing thing. The thing that we are also trying to do in terms of our own part, uh, in addition to helping specific companies, is just making sure that the people who are building these exponential engines are actually thinking about the consequences of their actions and behaving in a responsible way. The great mathematician, John von Neumann, and now I've got to cite some mathematicians and other things like that to seem like I'm as smart as Jeff, but the great mathematician, John von Neumann, came up with the concept of the Neumann machine, which is a machine that makes copies of itself. And that's really what a lot of these blitzscaling companies are. They're von Neumann machines. They're growing at an exponential rate. And the boundary conditions we build into them from the start end up having a huge influence later on. And so our hope is that as we get out there and teach people how to grow exponentially, that we also teach them how to do so responsibly, how to build into the things that they do, the various guardrails that will actually steer mankind in a better direction. And I remain optimistic. One of the things I'm fond of saying is that human ingenuity is unlimited. Resources may be limited, Fossil fuels may be limited. All these things may be limited, but human ingenuity is not limited. And I am firmly of the belief that we'll find a way to make it work. I agree. I'm also an optimistic. And I, I also find that for the first time, we have the conditions to have a sustainable life. So it's really about uh, being responsible on what we do and what kind of uh, a footprint we want to leave, right? So yeah, I, I totally agree with both of you guys. Uh, it's amazing conversation and amazing thoughts. Well, moving to responsibilities and how we make decisions, I'm totally in another space. That is how at Blitz Scaling Ventures you make decisions in terms of uh, investment decisions. Because I know you have the framework, but in between uh, framework and criteria, everybody has its own views of uh, reality and future and and others. How do you account for all the views and opinions and, and come up with a decision? Is it like based on the group's decision? Is it individual task? How do you do it there? <laughs> So every venture firm works in different ways, and we are fortunate in the way that we work. I think it, it helps produce good decisions because we operate in a consensus-driven culture. So all of us have to decide and agree, hey, this makes sense. Uh, a lot of venture firms that work in a different way, basically, it's almost like a, a loose coalition of independent operators, and each individual person can make their deals. With us, we're each playing a different role in the deals, and there's nothing like, oh, this is a Chris Yeh deal, or this is a Jeff Abbott deal. It's just here are the deals that we're considering. The other good news is that there is an embarrassment of riches. We see all these incredible companies, many more companies per year than we could possibly invest in. Our our goal is to invest in four companies a year, and we probably see 30 to 40 companies that we think are potential investments. So we have the opportunity to be really, really picky. And that means that we have this attitude of, well, if not, if we can't get everyone on board with doing this, guess what? There's another great company coming next month, and maybe that will be the one that we do. So we take a consensus-based approach where we're looking at both the numbers as well as our uh, basically a, a subjective view of the product and how we feel about it. And at the end of the day, I mean, this just happened on Monday, for example, we had this question. It's like, we just did our first investment. And before we pushed send on the wire, we're like, okay, last chance, everyone, do we want to do this? What do we think? Do we have any doubts? And we're like, no, do it. All right, push the button. 
And I would also like to add, going back to the mention that Blitzscaling is a framework, that the fact that we've taken the book and, and reduced it to this framework, which we've shared with Estella and, and we're also teaching in the, in the academy, makes it very easy to say, everyone take a look at the deal. Like I may score the deal slightly differently than Chris and any 10 people that we brought in to advise us would also likely score it slightly differently. But that's the benefit of the framework, right? It, it focuses you, it guides the conversation and you ultimately arrive at a consensus. So the, the very process-driven use of the framework helps us arrive at that consensus. And frankly, what we love is when our investment decisions are no-brainers. When we look at a company, we're like, oh my God, we just need to be in that company. Uh, let's just get into it. Let's, let's do whatever we can to get in. That's the kind of conviction we like to have when we make an investment. That's great. Must be an awesome feeling when that happens, right? So totally. Provided we get in the deal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. It all depends on the outcome, I guess. So this was an awesome conversation. I think we went deep already, but just to go a little bit deeper, let's go into a final icebreaker and just share something both of you excited about and something that is currently scaring you. So one of each. Something that's exciting me is the, and it's very mundane, is just the end of the pandemic and the, the chance to get back out in the world. And, and particularly, um, I'm dreaming about being on a beach somewhere and experiencing the waves and the water. I'm, I'm dreaming about being up in the mountains. There's no reason I couldn't have done that during the pandemic, I just wasn't in the, in the right place. But I think, you know, I'm excited about the, the return to normalcy and the new pop, the new possibilities that that's opened up for everyone to work more effectively from anywhere. I'm a, a bit of a digital nomad. I live in a number of different places and like to travel. So the fact that that will be easier and, uh, and that we're so well positioned to benefit from that excites me. Something that scares me is the rising threat of conflict in the world. I, pay a lot of attention to geopolitics. I, I read probably more than most people about minute movements of troops or, or shows of force in different parts of the world. And it feels to me unmistakable that we're moving towards uh, some kind of a, a moment such as the one that started World War I, where some you know, seemingly insignificant event or something could trigger a broader conflict. And to me, that seems an inexorable march at this point. Um, I don't know when or where. It feels like it could be tomorrow or in the next five years, but that scares me um, because uh, Chris and I were talking about this on the phone this morning. You know, as imperfect as it is, the current version of the world, you know, the sort of international rules-based order that came about after World War II, to me, is much preferable to any of the other versions or visions of the world that are being advanced by some of the autocrats around the world. So I... Uh, want to do everything that we continue to do to build friends, to build allies, to uh, strengthen ties through commerce. Countries that trade together usually don't go to war together. And I'll echo Jeff's sentiments. Uh, what I'm excited about uh, for the most part, and again, very selfishly, is the opportunity to work with some of these incredible entrepreneurs. I mean, it's just so exciting to be working on companies that are growing so quickly, they're doing such amazing things. And I do find that the entrepreneurs that we encounter are just amazing human beings who just are intelligent and dedicated and hardworking. All these things that we really enjoy, all the things that you guys enjoy in your work at Estella. Uh, there's a reason why you do it. And 
And that is something that continues to be something I'm really excited about. Something I'm scared of, uh, again, I think geopolitical conflict is definitely uh, an issue. I think that now we can bring out yet another citation and describe the, the, the Thucydides trap that is playing out in the South China Seas, where we continue to see the tensions rising between China and Taiwan, and of course, the United States as well. But I will discuss something that is slightly more domestic, which is just the rise of populism, anti-science, anti-reason populism throughout the world. We have both unfortunately suffered some of those effects, no need to name any names, but it seems mind-boggling to me that the kind of populism that has led to such terrible results can continue to see the support that it does. And that's why it's so important that we continue doing a better job with these different channels of communication that have been grown through blitzscaling to improve the kind of discourse that's out there. I mean, I, I like to believe that human beings are generally good. And the reason why they feel these terrible things is because they've been fed a lot of propaganda. And I would like to see us find a way through that. Oh my God, that's so wonderful. This conversation was a journey in itself. I mean, we went uh, all around and such a interesting views and conversation. I don't want this to finish, but our time is up and I know everybody has other meetings. <laughs> so thank you so much, Chris, Jeff. It's uh, our honor to be here and uh, it's great to be part of uh, Blitz Scaling Academy with you. We've been learning a lot and uh, we we want to share more. I mean, more on podcasts, more deals, more on thoughts and daily life. It's a pleasure to be with you guys. Thank you so much. I want to also thank you. I mean, we just got to personally build a relationship uh, throughout this conversation. And I, this is just the beginning. So thank you. Thank you very much. It's a great honor to be with you. Uh, we look forward to working with you more closely in the Blitzscaling Academy and, and strengthening the ties between our communities. And I also feel a, a nice friendship and partnership developing between us. So I sincerely look forward to seeing you in person sometime and in Brazil. And we are so honored to be asked to be on the inaugural podcast and to have the honor of, of opening up these conversations. I think you guys did a fantastic job of really going deep and making sure that it wasn't just another discussion of the same old, same old. So I think that you're going to be enormously successful with this. And I really am looking forward to the day when Jeff and I are both there in person in Brazil and we can all appropriately celebrate. Thank you so much. <laughs> hey, thank you guys. Awesome. And we'll be, I'm sure the sound engineers can edit out the part where it's like, Chris, you're on mute. <laughs> I wrote, I wrote that, I wrote down the minute. Yeah. So. Yeah. Perfect. You got it. That'll be funny.